Seltzer Kings Podcasts. Hey, are you into werewolves, mad sciences, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. Oh, no, Gavin, I totally believe you would win a Jeopardy. It's just that they would never let you on the show because you're extremely unpleasant to look at. Ass. The following podcast contains... Sacred Island, watch the language. Hey, pal, watch the gutter language. Okay, okay, let's try to watch the language. There's children present now. And will you watch your ruddy language? My ears are not a toilet. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you design the big board with a pattern so easy to spot the ice cream guy could figure it out, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 298, Big Bucks No Whammy Stop, where we tell you about the day the whammies died. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Were You Thinking podcast is brought to you by The Match Game, introducing you to things you were too young to understand since 1969. The Match Game provided a generation of young Americans with double entendres and sexual innuendos. In your endo. And flamboyantly gay camp they would never have experienced on their own. You might think daytime game shows were boring, but you've never seen Brett Summers make Charles Nelson Riley blush. The Match Game, pure smut and despicable demi-porn disguised as a game show, and it was the best damn thing on television. A Match Game, answering the hunt in the naughtiest way possible, the question, Ugly Egna is so ugly, how ugly was she? She not only had droopy eyes, she had droopy blank. Today's consolation prizes are American Tourister Men's or Ladies Carry-On Club Coat. Unique continental styling designed to go everywhere. Strong, lightweight luggage by American Tourister. And an assortment of Tussie Cosmetics. Rich, fine makeup that gives you that high-priced look at budget prices. Because rich is a look, not a price. And a supply of rice a the big flavor side dish. is so quick, so easy, saute and simmer to flavor convection. rice a the San Francisco treat. Merrily, we blank along when Match Game 75 continues in a minute. It's popular amongst a certain age of bitterly degenerating folks to look back on those long golden summers of our youths and opine on how our days spent romping in the sunshine and exploring hitting pockets of magical forest, riding our bikes in wholesome groups of preteens, having awesome adventures were so great. But you know what? What a load of crap. Listen, kids, your Gen X parents did not do none of that shit. You want a rundown of how your parents spent their youths? If school wasn't in session, we would rise in the late mornings, wolf down a bowl of cereal so laden with sugar and artificial flavorings, it would kill us if we ate it today, and settle down in front of the television for as many hours of uninterrupted, mindless entertainment as possible. I miss simpler times. On the weekdays, this meant a four-hour block of television so devoid of creativity and intellect the shows made the afternoon talk shows seem, I don't know, erudite by comparison, game shows. There were, of course, two classes of game shows. The network shows, which aired in the mornings after the news and before the afternoon soaps. These were the high-class shows, The Price is Right, Family Feud, The Pyramid, Let's Make a Deal. You know. Think they are modern classics. 
After the soaps were over, the afternoon block consisted of the low-rent section of the game shows, your Joker's Wild, your Tic-Tac-Doe, and of course, kids' favorites like the newlywed game, the dating game, and Love Connection. And then, after dinner, but before primetime viewing, you had your wheel in your Jeopardy. Nothing ever changes. 80s game shows were all pretty simple and largely consisted of white people sitting down with washed up celebrities answering questions so simple no one could possibly get them wrong and yet somehow oh, they fucked it up. Or by playing games of pure chance where blind luck determined who went home with the big bucks and who went home with I'm going to give you this lovely parting gift. Folks with a, <laughs> with a lot of turtle wax and riceroni in those days. This was not an accident. The studios who produced these game shows operated on the casino model. Just enough winners to keep the suckers playing so the show could stay on the air and sell more ads for turtle wax and riceroni. And it was a brilliant model, and it's worked for 75 plus years now. And by God, it kept us glued to the TV sets instead of being outside in the fresh air engaging in petty crimes. But the studios decided they needed to create some new shows more in line with the nascent 80s vibe. You know, neon colors, distractions, greed, and most of all, a flashy new technology. Hell, even in the 80s, the hosts of the big shows were getting kind of long in the tooth. Dick Clark was already well over a century old. Monty Hall was a mummy. And Bob Barker looked like he was in his 80s when he was 40. So CBS went to some young-ish producers, Bill Carruthers and Jan McCormick, to create a new premier game show with youth appeal. And they came back with... Press Your Luck was a pretty standard game show by the standards of the time. Contestants answered some trivia questions to win spins at the big board. That you could win cash and prizes. And the big board is where the fun was. 18 spaces filled with, for the time, high-value loot that randomly lit up and the contestant would slap their buzzer to win what was in the square they landed on. But that wasn't what made people watch Press Your Luck. We watched for the whammies. Stop. The whammies were red, devilish animated characters that inhabited the squares, and if you happened to land on a whammy, you lost all your money and any spins you had remaining unless they'd been passed to you. That will become relevant later on. The whammy would appear on the screen, reveling and taking your money, only to suffer some painful humiliation as they rolled off with your cast and spins. When you got four whammies, you were done. Most shows had a faintly regretful host expressing sympathy for your bad luck and your losses, but Press Your Luck was all like, Man, you are one pathetic loser. And the kids rooted for the whammies. My sister and I would chant, whammy, 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 while the contestant begged for big bucks and then howled in glee when the whammy hit. It's, uh, it's why a lot of people watch Press Your Luck, I think. And just a little whammy trivia for you, the animator was a guy named Savage Steed Holland. And if that name doesn't ring a bell for you these days, it's either because you're too young or too old or too out of touch with the cultural zeitgeist of being a kid in the 90s, because he was behind some of the biggest cartoons of the early 1990s. Like, Eek the Cat.
or the terrible thunder lizards. I don't know any of those cartoons, but I'm betting some of the folks who do other shows on Seltzer King know exactly what I'm talking about. But if you're a Gen Xer like me, you know Savage Steve, best for a little movie, starring a young John Cusack. Better off dead. That's a real shame when folks be throwing away a perfectly good white boy like that. An abnormal look at a normal teenager. Savage Steve is still doing animation today for Nickelodeon and Disney. But for all of that cool animation stuff, Pressure Luck never really caught on. Its host, Peter Tamarkin, was likable, and it landed a decent slot for morning game shows on CBS, parked between The Price is Right and The Pyramid. But in 1986, the show got bumped to an afternoon time slot by the behemoth, The Price is Right. The Price is Wrong, bitch. And it never really caught on there. And while the kids loved the whammy, it didn't really appeal to the adult game show watching crowd, and the show was canceled shortly after moving to the later time slot. It bounced around in syndication for a little while before eventually fading out altogether. But the whammy, the whammy had lodged itself in the collective consciousness, the memory of a generation, and the phrase big bucks, no whammies will generate an instant nostalgia in a certain age demographic that I'm appealing to in this show. But none of that is why I'm talking about it today. I'm talking about pressure luck today because of the scandal. Oh, yes, Podfins, there was quite the scandal around Pressure for Your Luck. And for years, it was a quiet one because it was acutely embarrassing to the people who made the show. Now, it wasn't a sex scandal. There were no Bob Babes being harassed on the set. No, <laughs> this was a scandal about the money. And CBS buried it as fast and as deep as they could when it happened. It was only years later after the advent of the Internet, people began to collectively recall what had happened, as people do on the Internet, and the full story would finally be put together and it all started with a cat by the name of Paul Michael Larson. Who is Michael Larson? Well, in all honesty, oh, him? He's nobody. Michael Larson was the kind of down and out of the heels Midwestern dude who spent most of his life in a series of dead-end jobs like driving ice cream trucks and always looking for his big break. Mike was obsessed with the idea of hitting it rich without doing a lot of crazy stuff like, yeah, well, working. He wasn't like a big-time criminal, but he wasn't exactly not a criminal either. Quoting from Priceonomics' blog, quote, He didn't understand the value of good, hard, honest work, his older brother James later bemoaned. He thought that those people were fools. Instead, Larson invested great amounts of time seeking out loopholes and taking advantage of them, often illegally. In one instance, he found a bank that gave out $500 for starting a new checking fund. Using fake names, he opened dozens of accounts, waited the minimum necessary duration, then withdrew the money. On other occasions, he registered a business under a family member's name, hired himself as an employee, then fired himself to collect unemployment benefits, unquote. Larson was the kind of guy that was always looking to come up with a plan. And usually those plans left him worse off than when he started. He wasn't really a bad guy, just kind of a lazy dreamer with a shitty work ethic. And, you know, that's something that I can personally identify with. And he watched all the game shows looking for the one he could win big money on. And shortly after Pressure Luck debuted in 1983, Mike began to notice something about the big board that he couldn't quite put his finger on. 
So he began videotaping the shows and obsessively watching them over and over again, annoying the shit out of his live-in girlfriend at the time. Jesus, Michael, it's been so fucking long. After watching the show hundreds of times, Larson discovered something. The big board wasn't random at all. It operated on only five patterns, and those patterns could be spotted and exploited by someone quick enough. Michael began practicing at home and was soon confident he could beat the big board. Taking all of his savings, he flew to California and tried out to be a contestant on Press Your Luck. When you're in the Los Angeles area, we'd love to have you come to our contestant tryouts. We held daily auditions. We had one in the morning and one in the afternoon. Maybe 50 people in each session. He came in and he said he had just gotten off a bus. Said he had walked up Vine Street and said that he was an ice cream man from Ohio. And I'm sitting there going, no, he's not. Bobby Edwards was one shrewd guy. He knew something was wrong. But Michael Larson was not to be denied. I said, the guy's got a great story, but I don't know that I buy it. He played the game well. He was smart. He answered the questions. He had a lot of energy. And Bill said, what do you think? And I said, I don't trust him. There's something about him I don't believe in and I don't trust. I did not want to book it. Bill did. That's how he got to the studio. Because getting on the show was the biggest hurdle, and Larson had done that. Now, everything came down to the system. Quoting from Wikipedia, quote, Larson discovered that the fourth and eighth square from the number one top left corner, then clockwise around the board, always contained cash and never a whammy, a bandit-like cartoon character that when landed on result into his player's score to zero, and accompanied on screen by an animation that showed the whammy taking the player's earnings. Larson also learned that the number four square always contained the top dollar values and that in the second round, contestants were awarded an additional spin if landing on those spots. $3,000, $4,000, or $5,000 in square four, $500, $750, or $1,000 in square eight. This proved crucial to Larson's theory, as he could retain control of the board in the second round as long as he wished if he kept following the patterns, unquote. In short, for as long as his reflexes and concentration held out, Michael Larson could run the board as long as he wanted and rack up tens of thousands of dollars and more spins. And this was exactly what he proceeded to do. After hitting a whammy in the first big board round, Larson put the plan in motion in the second big board round and never stopped. It went on so long that the episode had to be split in two for broadcast. Well, for the benefit of our viewers who weren't with us on Friday, let me explain that we ran out of time before we could finish a very exciting game. So let me bring you all up to date right now. This is Ed Long. Ed is a Baptist minister from La Crescenta, California, who is a returning champion, having won $11,516 on last Thursday's show. Ed came to the bonus board in Friday's game with two spins and $4,080, and Ed has yet to take those two spins. Janie Litkus, well, she racked up the most money in round one, having $4,608 to her credit, and she will play last in this the second half of the game that began Friday. Janie is a dental assistant from San Bernardino, California. And this is Michael Larson, an unemployed ice cream truck driver from Lebanon, Ohio, who has had an amazing run at our board. So far, in 15 spins, Michael has managed to avoid the whammy and has racked up a total of $36,851. But 
He has four spins left. And we'll see what he does with them as we pick up the game in progress. Again from Wikipedia, quote, Larson's pattern play became more accurate as he hit his target squares each time he spun. Tamarkin was increasingly astounded that Larson was still spinning despite not having seen a whammy for so long. Larson continued to press on, passing more and more milestone markers without losing any of his remaining four spins. The episode was taped into two parts since Larson kept pressing. He passed the $40,000, the $50,000, and the $60,000 marks, and Tamarkin virtually begged Larson to stop more than once, fearing he would hit a whammy. Miami. Larson finally decided to stop once he reached $102,851. By this time, he'd made 40 spins on the board without hitting a whammy, in which 37 went for cash. Of those 37 spins, he hit the number four square 20 times, including six in a row. He also managed to land on the eight square 15 times, hitting it consecutively three in a row twice. After he announced he was passing his remaining four spins, Larson raised his arms in triumph and received a standing ovation from the audience, unquote. To say that Peter Tamarkin was shocked would be an understatement. And his fellow contestants were at first, then amazed, then shocked, and then... I'm stuff is what I am. After his long run, Vis Larson was visibly tired and looking very frazzled. He passed his four remaining spins to the second-place contestant, Jamie Littress, who, by the rules, had to play all of the past spins, even if she whammied, and whammy she did on her very first spin. She used up those spins, gaining over nine grand in cash and prizes, and two extra spins, which she promptly passed back to Larson. Oh, fuck you, Mike. The look on Larson's face said it all. Dude was spent, and knew those two spins could fuck him royally, yet he had to take them, and take them he did. His first two spins were right on the mark, gaining him cash and more spins, which was a big problem for Larson. Those extra spins made the whole thing possible and now became a huge albatross around his neck because it was clear he was slipping. His last mandatory spin just barely missed a whammy and earned him a Bahama vacation to causing Peter Tamarkin to joke, what with that money you could buy the Bahamas, Michael? Now sitting on 110000 $237 over 275 grand in today's money. Larson was holding two spins. He packed them back to Litra, who racked up more money, but fortunately for him, no spins to pass back. And finally, Michael Larson's run at the big board was over. Behind the scenes, the producers and staff of Pressure Luck, they, uh, they had questions. What the fuck just happened? The network was on the phone with the producers. The producers were on the phone with the game designers, and everyone wanted to know... How? How had Michael Larson cheated? Again, quoting from Priceonomics, quote, While Larson celebrated on stage, the powers of B at CBS set dumb, dumbfounded and deflated. I wasn't there that day, but boy, did I hear about it, Bob Bowden, a former executive of CBS daytime program in Laser Told TV Land. It went through the hallways of CBS like a rocket. Darlene Lieblick tripped him, was, uh, was in the pressure luck control room that day. As a CBS employee, it was her job to ensure the contestants were playing by the rules. In an interview with This American Life, she, recorded, she recalled the mounting tension backstage. It wasn't unusual for contestants to go on streaks. It was kind of the way the game was designed. But after about 10 spins on the board, it started to become obvious that he was hitting the same prize in the same square every time. And that's skill. It's not random. It's not luck. 
He could aim and hit, which we didn't think was possible. First, the booth got very quiet. Then there was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, what do we do? People were turning to me saying, can we stop this? Statistically, it was extremely unlikely that Larson had gotten, simply gotten lucky. Given the one in six odds of hitting a whammy, the probability of doing 45 spins in a row without hitting one or 0.27%. Larson had beat the odds of roughly three out of 10,000, unquote. And as they went through everything that happened that day, looking for any plausible reason to, not, to deny paying Larson the money, no one could find anything in the rules that Larson broke. He answered all the questions, he took all the spins, he hit all the squares, and legitimately had gamed the board. Come to find out, they even knew that the board had this flaw from before the show ever went on the air. In the weeks prior to the show's premiere in September 1983, Concern over the design of the board began to be voiced. The game board, as I understand it, had a limited number of patterns, and they ran the same patterns over and over again. That was a problem for the producers, who felt that such a small number of patterns may prove to be the board's Achilles heel. I said, we can't go with six. So we had a meeting about a week later with the head of the network, daytime head, Mike Brockman. So this issue was discussed, and it was then agreed at the outset to reduce the frequency of the light patterns, thinking that it would be safe and that there would be no risk involved in doing that. Obviously, we were wrong. All Mike Larson had done was spotted a pattern they knew about and exploited it, but he never cheated. Even today, Mike Larson is considered the guy who cheated on pressure luck, but that never happened. The show fucked up, and Larson used that fuck up to legally win a shitload of money. He stuck the network to the tune of 110,237 bucks. Michael Larson whammied CBS. Stop it out. And he CBS and Pressure Luck instantly revamped the big board, bumping the number of patterns well into the 30s, which made it well nigh impossible for a human being to spot and act on them quickly enough to do what Larson did. And because the max amount of winnings on any game show was 25 grand in total, Larson did young, didn't get to come back for a second day, which would normally happen. Larson over the years tried to get CBS to have him back on, pitching a tournament of champion idea, which the network promptly shot down. And in fact, after the original air date of the Larson episodes, CBS ordered those episodes vaulted and effectively they disappeared from the airwaves until 2003 when the Game Show Network ran a documentary on what happened. You've heard several clips from that documentary in this episode. This American Life and Planet Money did a story about the scandal in 2010, interviewing the people in front of and behind the camera. Attempts to revive the show have happened over the years and the most recent one in 2019, bringing back whammies in the big board for a new generation. All of which was uh, pretty strange for a show that only ran for a few years in his first run and never really caught on. But the legend of Michael Larson succeeded in keeping the memory of the show alive. Sadly uh, for Mike, the money didn't change his life because Larson, well, he was who he was. After taxes, he pocketed just over 90 grand and for a while was doing all the things a grown person does, you know, like putting the money in the bank. But Larson couldn't resist the call of a get-rich-quick scheme. Going back to Priceonomics, but a few months later, while listening to the radio, Larson heard about a contest he just couldn't resist. The show read a serial number on air every day, and if the listener could match the number of that $1 bill, they could win $30,000. 
Larson visited five different banks, withdrawing nearly $50,000 in $1 bills. Then, over the course of two weeks, he analyzed every bill in hopes of winning. A match never came, and Larson, who'd grown just a bit lazy by then, resolved just to leave the bills in his home. This didn't work out too well. One night, he left for a Christmas party and came home to a kicked-in back door, and all the money was gone, unquote. He went on to launch a Ponzi scheme, a fake lottery ticket scam, fraudulent real estate deals, and wound up on the run from the FBI, the Security Exchange Commission, and the IRS. He managed to elude capture for nearly 20 years before dying of throat cancer in poverty in Apopka, Florida. Florida. Larson wasn't a great guy. And he suffered from that most American of diseases, the one that drives people to dump money into lotteries or, say, pump up the stocks of a failing game store thinking they can cash out before the bottom drops out and walk away rich. And poor Mike wasn't even good at being a Ponzi schemer. He brought in barely 20 grand before it all fell apart. No Bernie Madoff. The person who wound up being hurt the worst by Michael Larson was Michael Larson. Even CBS, who lost 100 grand in the short term, made it back in revenues over the years. The YouTube footage out there now of the Larson Show still kicks money back into the coffers of CBS. In the end, he was just a guy who had one good idea in his life. And there are a lot of people that don't even get that one good idea. He could have lived comfortably on that money if he'd invested it well. He would have been rich, but he could have lived comfortably. But, you know, Mike, he couldn't let well enough alone. And he had to, uh, well... He had to press his luck. That is it for our show this week. This is not actually a two-parter. It's like a two-parter-ish, but when we come back next week, we're going to have a different kind of story about a game show scandal. And while this week's was sad, maybe even a little cute, next week will be something very much different because next week it will involve murder. And you'll definitely want to check that one out. Rate and review the show wherever you get your pods. It helps others find the show and wonder why you would murder their feeds with this kind of garbage. Follow the show on the socials at the hell underscore podcast on Twitter or the show name on Facebook for all of our other crimes against decency that we commit there. You can kick a few dollars our way at patreon.com slash what the hell podcast because it would be a shame if something would happen to this beautiful podcast stream you got going on here. You know what I'm saying? All of our rackets are at whatthehellpodcast.com, and we are a proud member of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network, Burgata. So for me, Dave, gotta go for it. Big bucks, no whammy. Stop, so Producer, I think I'm going to pass my spins, Gavin, and all the fictional whammies on this show we want to say. That's right. All contestants on What the Hell Will You Think You Receive with the What the Hell Home Game. Play along as Dave, Gavin, or Fast Eddie against the network as they try to convince the network their liquor cost or reimbursable expenses or that a Cadillac Eldorado is needed to create a broadcast. A cosmetic sampler from Maybelline containing an assortment of blushes, eyeliners, and lipsticks. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. In addition, each will get a case of turtle wax. Protect your ride and enhance the shine with turtle wax. Also, an American Tourister luggage set for the person on the go. The American Tourister 295 wheeled luggage set provides strong protection and ease of mobility for your busy life. And finally, a supply of rice the new flavored side dishes so quick, easy saute, simmer and eat. rice the San Francisco treat. And now back to Jeremy Mulan with our Seltzer Kings podcast showdown sign-off.
What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.